One of the nation's top financial agencies considers downgrading the country's credit rating as talks over raising the debt ceiling drag on. It's Thursday, May 25th. This is WBMAR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Florida Governor Republican Ron DeSantis enters the 2024 presidential race in a debut plagued by technical glitches. Also, the fight between Kansas City and the state of Missouri over who controls the city's police department. This form of governing is archaic. We should be in control of our police department, especially considering the fact that we fund it. And this hour... You have fig trees, apricots, plums, all types of berries, strawberries, blackberries, golden berries. If you can pick it, you can eat it. We explore a new forest in Mattapan that you can eat. In sports, Red Sox lose, mostly sunny in the 60s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Despite a number of setbacks this week, the White House says talks about terms for raising the nation's debt ceiling remain productive. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports time is running out for House Republicans and President Biden to strike a compromise. The U.S. could default on its debt as soon as June 1st if the two sides don't get a deal over the finish line. The fight over government spending has become the main focus of the talks, with Republicans demanding deep cuts in the budget in exchange for lifting the borrowing limit. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says those cutbacks would be disastrous for Americans. The president is fighting to lower costs for prescription drugs and to save the government money. He's fighting against uh, proposals that take away people's health care and push people into poverty. Talks have also included potential work requirements on some federal assistance programs and clawing back unspent coronavirus aid. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Super Typhoon Mawa is rushing across the Pacific, headed next for Taiwan. Top sustained winds are at 166 miles per hour. The typhoon crashed into the U.S. territory of Guam this week. Ashley Westerman tells us no deaths have been reported. Thousands of residents on Guam woke up Thursday morning with no power or telecommunications as the storm brought down power lines and uprooted trees. Some people also lost water. Weather forecasters say more than a foot of rain fell across the island, flooding buildings. Meanwhile, witnesses say parts of the coast lay battered by storm surge and some cars had been dragged off and flipped by the wind. The U.S. Navy has ordered the USS Nimitz to Guam to assist. Officials say the emergency declaration President Joe Biden signed before the typhoon hit will help with the recovery effort. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Westerman in Batangas, Philippines. Today marks three years since George Floyd was murdered by a then-Minneapolis police officer. Mourners will gather at the site of his killing today. Several days of events are planned, including a candlelight vigil. The motoring group AAA predicts that 42 million Americans will travel this Memorial Day weekend, many by car. The group says gas prices are about a dollar a gallon lower than they were this time a year ago. Patrick Dehan is with the app Gas Buddy. He says motorists can find savings across state lines. States see incredible volatility between them in gasoline prices. Uh, by crossing a state boundary, occasionally you can notice difference of 20 to 50 cents a gallon. So as a motorist, uh, my first tip is certainly to shop around, especially before you cross out of the state to make sure that uh, you aren't leaving behind the lower gas prices. AAA says the national average price for a gallon of regular gas is $3.57. 
You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The city of Cambridge will begin a universal pre-kindergarten program next fall. The Cambridge preschool program will be open to all four-year-olds in the city as well as some three-year-olds. Lisa Grant is the executive director of the city's Office of Early Childhood. She says the program will be free for parents. Families make decisions oftentimes based on what they can afford and not necessarily on what's best for their child or what's aligned with their own philosophy on child development and so on. And so the ability to not have income or cost be a factor in families' decision-making around preschool, I think will have really huge impacts for children and their families. The application process will open this winter. The state Senate is moving forward with a plan to provide in-state tuition rates at state colleges for some undocumented immigrants. The plan is part of the Senate's nearly $56 billion budget. Students must graduate from a Massachusetts high school and have been a resident for at least three years to qualify. Governor Maura Healey has expressed support for the measure, but the plan is not included in the House's version of the budget. There's a sea of 37,000 U.S. flags on the Boston Common this morning. It's the annual tribute to the Massachusetts military members who've died in action since the Revolutionary War. WBUR's Dan Guzman reports there will be a ceremony today on the Common to honor those who've recently died. The names of nearly 400 people killed since 9-11 will be read this morning. Oftentimes, one of the family members will be reading their name and saying their name out loud as we plant a flag for them. That's Tom Crohan, co-founder and president of the Massachusetts Military Heroes Fund, which organizes the tribute. He believes the location of the flags makes the display particularly striking. Because it's not something that when people are walking through, they're thinking necessarily about Memorial Day, or, you know, it's on their mind, and it's impossible to walk by this sea of flags without stopping, pausing, and reflecting. The flags will be on display through Monday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. There's an effort to name a federal building in Massachusetts for an Asian American for the first time. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley will introduce legislation today to name the post office near South Station for Caroline Chang. Chang was a government worker and community organizer in Boston's Chinatown. She died in 2018. The Boston Globe reports that if the effort is successful, it would be the first post office named for a woman of color in the state. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty, on stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And BMW, the BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. There are delays on the Green Line right now because of a signal problem at Union Square. The T says riders should add about 20 minutes to their commuting time. Tonight at the Garden, it's Game 5 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals between the Celtics and the Miami Heat. The Seas trail in the series three games to one, so it's win or season over. The Red Sox lost to the Angels 7-3 to last night in California. The Sox are off tonight. Mostly sunny today and in the 60s, some clouds tonight. It'll be in the 40s. Sunny again tomorrow and in the 60s. It'll be dry and warm for the holiday weekend. It's 51 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ion Television presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. 
On a Thursday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis officially announced that he is running for president in 2024, but the launch ended up as more of a crash landing. The conversation was set to take place live on Twitter with Twitter owner Elon Musk, but it began with 20 minutes of technical failures, long silences, and echoing microphones as more than half a million people tried to join the conversation. When DeSantis finally was able to speak, he took on President Biden. Biden's allowed woke ideology to drive his agenda. We will never surrender to the woke mob, and we will leave woke ideology in the dustbin of history. For more on how DeSantis' campaign moves forward from here, I'm joined now by Republican political strategist Scott Jennings. Mr. Jennings, welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. So what signal do you think that Governor DeSantis was trying to send by announcing his run with this conversation on Twitter? Well, the the overall message of DeSantis is really a statement about, I think, his rejection of the legacy media. And of course, we're all talking about it. So maybe they were looking for an out of the box idea to generate conversation. But to me, it's about the media. DeSantis doesn't like the media. uh, And he's trying to make this argument that we can bypass traditional media and run for president uh, and contrast himself to Donald Trump, who he would argue talks the talk on the media but won't walk the walk because he still craves their attention. So I, I really think it's a it's a larger cultural conversation he wants to have about Republicans, who, by the way, agree with DeSantis. They, they don't like the media. They don't trust the media. And he's really trying to say, let's bypass them and make them irrelevant. You mean the legacy media? I, I assume you're not talking about Fox and the other conservative media outlets. Or are yeah, you? legacy are you? mainstream media and, okay. and the political journalists, okay. absolutely. So, so as we, we mentioned, technical difficulties, embarrassing, you know, awkward. We always try to remind people Twitter is not real life. But um, if you were advising the DeSantis campaign, how would, you, how would you be talking about it or would you be talking about it? And do you think this follows him or has any meaning beyond last night? Well, the, the spin they have is, is the correct spin. You know, obviously the interest was so great that it overwhelmed this platform. And who, who other than Donald Trump would have triggered such a response and sort of national conversation about something? So that's a good thing. They also raised a bunch of money. I think where they lost out was on the visuals. Presidential campaign launches often provide striking visuals that give people a chance to see you uh, in a way that gives them the idea that this looks like a president. So they lost out on that. So I know they've launched uh, a schedule for an upcoming tour. I would be thinking about how to stage him in a way that gives people the idea that, yep, this looks like a guy who could be the president. So the visual piece of this is what's missing, and they can fix that over the next few days. So speaking of the former president, uh, he's really gone in on DeSantis over the last couple of months, but DeSantis really, for the most part, hasn't answered. Do you think that's been a mistake, and, and how should he counter now? Now he can't say, well, I'm not really running, we'll see, whatever. He is running. So should he answer, and how? Yeah, he's going to have to go right at Donald Trump. You can't uh, you know, the problem with subtlety in politics is that not everyone gets it. <laughs> and so you have to go right at it and make the argument, make the contrast. And I think he's going to start to do it. He's already started doing it on COVID. He may obviously talk about immigration as well and say Trump wasn't able to finish the job here. And, and I'm sure there's going to be some other topics, but you can't allude to it. I think he just has to go right at it. There's really no other way. And I think what Republicans expect is you to fight for what you say you believe in and beating around the bush is not fighting. Uh, They're gonna expect him to go right after Trump and I don't think there's any downside to doing it. The battle is joined, you're in the race now uh, and that's what people wanna see you do. How badly do you want it? 
Before we let you go, DeSantis, interestingly enough, is considered fairly reclusive for a politician. His people skills are often spoken about by the people who cover him or around him closely. Does this matter in a national campaign? How do you think that how do you think that works? Well, I don't think he's any more reclusive than, say, Joe Biden, <laughs> who uh, rarely meets with the press either. I, I Look, he got reelected by 20 points in Florida. I think this conversation about his political skills is overblown. Uh, and I do think there's a dedicated cadre of people who really hate Ron DeSantis, and they're constantly trying to come up with reasons why he can't possibly succeed. I don't okay. personally think this is going to be an issue. Okay. Every candidate has their own personality quirks and styles. Uh, but obviously there's something to him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have won such a big victory in what uh, previously okay. had been a purple state. That is Republican strategist Scott Jennings. Mr. Jennings, thanks so much for talking to us once again. Thank you. On the Democratic side, President Biden's team is out with a memo saying, among other things, that they plan to compete in 2024 in North Carolina. It's a state that has not been won by a Democratic presidential candidate since Barack Obama in 2008. Here's NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. When President Biden traveled to Durham earlier this year, newly elected Congressman Wiley Nickel got to fly with him on Air Force One. And Nickel had a pitch for the president. Please compete in North Carolina in 2024. He knew very well that it was the state that he lost by the closest amount in the last election. And he knows the promise. In 2020, Trump won North Carolina by a little more than a percentage point. We can now say that Donald Trump is the winner of North Carolina, the projected winner. Of in North a year Carolina. when Georgia and Arizona tipped toward Democrats, North Carolina remained just out of reach. We really expect North Carolina to be competitive. Kevin Munoz is a spokesman for the Biden-Harris re-election campaign. He says they expect a major issue will be reproductive rights and the 12-week abortion ban passed by the Republican supermajority in the state legislature. It demonstrates the stark contrast in leadership and the choice that the people of North Carolina are going to have in 2024. A president and a vice president that are going to uh, work to codify Roe into federal law or one of the extreme MAGA Republicans who supports a national ban. Munoz says the Democratic National Committee, which is closely coordinating with the Biden re-election campaign, worked with the state party to mobilize volunteers against the ban. North Carolina's Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, vetoed the bill, but his veto was overridden. A strong majority of North Carolinians do not like abortion bans, particularly like the one this legislature passed. But on top of that, they've said they're coming back for more the next time around. So it's clear that North Carolinians will be motivated to try and protect women's reproductive freedom. In 2024, there will also be a hotly contested governor's race, and the balance of power in the state legislature will be on the line. Cooper says the muscle that comes with a presidential campaign could help up and down the ballot. But Republican consultant Jonathan Feltz argues Biden, with his low approval ratings, will be a drag on Democrats. We Republicans are very anxious to see him campaign with Democratic candidates across North Carolina. Feltz is confident for a reason. In 2022, he was the lead advisor for now U.S. Senator Ted Budd's winning campaign. President Obama in 2008 was the last Democratic presidential candidate to win the state. And Feltz says he had a ton of money and a flawless campaign. With all those advantages, Barack Obama won North Carolina by a whopping 0.32%. Democrats are starting with a huge disadvantage, and the smart ones know it. And so if they want to waste their money here, God bless them. 
A Trump campaign spokesman said Biden's effort to compete in North Carolina is less about expanding the map than a fear of losing states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Michigan. Michael Bitzer, a political scientist at Catawba College in Salisbury, North Carolina, says he's seen this movie before. Election after election, Democrats keep bemoaning the fact that they can't win North Carolina. But, you know, how many times does it take to hit your head against a brick wall and think you're going to get a different result? Bitzer says to close the gap, Democrats will have to boost turnout among black voters and young voters, which they've failed to do in the past. But Democrats insist this time will be different. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The Mexican volcano known as El Popo has seen increased activity lately, which is particularly worrying for the 25 million plus people who live within a 60 mile radius of it, including the capital, Mexico City. So imagine how it feels to live immediately in its shadow. James Frederick has been to one small town that lies just five miles away from El Popo's very active crater. Santiago Salitzintla looks like many small towns in Mexico. There's a pretty central plaza, the mayor's office is on one side, a small cathedral on the other. It seems like any old day here in the central square, it's really just people going about their everyday business. But if you get to the right spot and you look west, you can see the top of El Popo, where it is still shooting this plume of steam and toxic gas and ash into the air. A thin layer of gray covers every surface. Most people are wearing masks, but otherwise ignoring their rumbling neighbor. Seventy-two-year-old Luciana Espinosa is focused on selling beans and vegetables. What are we going to do, she says. We have to eat. We have to work. Others I spoke to in Santiago Salincintla were also focused on practical concerns over the unknowable volcano. When would schools reopen so students can take their year-end exams? How can I make sure my livestock gets fed if we evacuate? Over time, you adjust to living next to an active volcano, says Benjamin Tequianes. It's normal for those of us who've always lived here, he says. We coexist with the volcano. El Popo had similar activity in 1994 and even as recently as 2016. Tequiane said this recent alert was an opportunity for the youngest generations to learn how to prepare for the worst. His family has prepared their important documents, an emergency grab bag, and a bit of spare water. Still, Claudia Cantero says even after years living next to Popocatépetl, there are still some things you never get used to. She says the other night they kept going out onto their rooftop every few hours to watch the faint orange glow from the crater light up the night sky. I tremble, but I was excited, she says. It's incredible to see a phenomenon like this. The latest reports from the government indicate activity at Popocatépetl is subsiding. Here in Santiago Salincintla, people are hoping that means they can soon go back to the everyday wonder of living next to a very active volcano. This is NPR News.
Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Amy Pope, a former advisor on migration to President Biden, has been elected the first woman to lead the International Organization for Migration. She'll weigh in on the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries. Free Sundays and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters. Nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Kids in the U.S. are now getting two-thirds of their calories from ultra-processed foods. And based on research with adults, that's probably not a good thing. Data showed increased risk of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and obesity among adults. I'm Ari Shapiro. More on ultra-processed foods and how to avoid them on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. If you're waking up with a scratchy throat, itchy eyes, or a runny nose this morning, you're not alone. This has been a bad allergy season. Today on The Common, host Daryl C. Murphy gets advice on how to cope and learns why climate change will make allergy season worse. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly sunny and a high near 66 today. Tonight, clouds move in and it falls to a low around 46. Tomorrow, back to sunny skies with a high near 68. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and Southampton, England on Queen Mary II. With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. Cunard.com crossing. From BritBox with Season 2 of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The party that won the most seats in an election in Thailand does not yet know if they'll get to govern. Voters favored the Progressive Party. It's opposed to the military-backed rule of the past nine years. But with many parties represented, the Progressives do not have an outright majority of seats to form a government. NPR's Michael Sullivan reports from Bangkok. The Move Forward Party's prime ministerial candidate is a good listener. Well, to NPR at least. As a big fan of uh, First and Tiny Desk, uh, it's really a, a good day for me today. The charismatic 42-year-old Pita Limjadunrat he is also a single dad with a seven-year-old daughter, a peripatetic past, and a colorful resume. I was born in Bangkok, grew up in Hamilton, New Zealand, until high school, and then Longhorns, UT Austin in Texas. Back here, I worked in an investment banking at Merrill Lynch, and then uh, Boston Consulting Group, and then the government house here in Thailand, and then a dual degree from Harvard on public policy, and MIT Sloan for business administration, and then family business, and then ran for office. That was just over four years ago. As part of the fledgling Future Forward Party, led by another charismatic young leader, Tanatorn Jungrung Rungkit. The party finished a surprising third in the 2019 general election, its calls for change and reform of the military and the monarchy striking a chord with young voters in particular. 
That strong finish alarmed the conservative establishment, and Future Forward was dissolved by the royalist conservative-backed courts the next year. We were hitting the right notes so much that they felt like we were threatening the elites and we were challenging the status quo. The party dissolved, its leadership banned from politics. It quickly rebranded as the Move Forward Party. Pita, he was already a prominent figure within the party due to his strong performance as an opposition MP. And that's the reason why he was selected to play a key role as a leader of the Move Forward Party. That's Napon Jatusi Pitak, a visiting fellow at the ISEAS Yusuf Ishak think tank in Singapore. He says Pita and Move Forward were competing with established parties with vast patronage networks and huge campaign war chests. Move Forward had neither. So it had to get creative. The Move Forward Party recognized early on the power of social media and adopted a robust digital strategy to connect with and mobilize supporters. Supporters at Move Forward rallies like this one, who use TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram, voters, Napon says, practically live online. So online, these individuals serve as content creators for the party by engaging with its activities. They're not only given opportunities to interact with their candidates in ways that were not previously possible, but they're also transformed from passive supporters into active campaigners for the party and its candidates even. Move Forward ended up winning more seats than any other party. And Pita is now working furiously to form a coalition government with himself as prime minister. One of his biggest hurdles, the 250-member military-appointed Senate, which makes up a third of the votes in Parliament. Most senators oppose Move Forward's call to amend the law against criticizing the monarchy. And without at least some of them, Pita will have a hard time winning the 376 votes he needs to become prime minister. And that's just one tool the establishment could use to thwart Move Forward and its allies. Again, Napon Jatusipita. Even if they manage to do everything correctly, people anticipate a response from the conservative establishment, most likely in the form of judicial intervention. He thinks the likely first step is the disqualification of Pita on trumped-up charges, just like future forward leader Tanatorn before him in 2019. Dissolving the party, he says, would be more dangerous. Chulalongkorn University political analyst Titinangpung Sudarak agrees. This time, if the same subversion is repeated with the dissolution of Move Forward, you see protests for sure because they're seeing the, the system being rigged against them, against their future. We could be in a crisis by July, August if the vote is subverted systematically like we've seen in the recent past. Nine years after staging its last coup, the military royalist establishment has failed miserably at the polls, but it still has its thumb planted firmly on the scale. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Bangkok. In Uvalde, Texas last night, the public park in the center of town was set aglow by a sea of candles. It was a tribute to the 19 children and two teachers who were killed in the shooting at Robb Elementary School a year ago. The memories are so painful that some of the victims' families left town this week rather than relive them. But others stayed and led an evening vigil to remember their loved ones. NPR's Adrian Florido was there. Just before sunset, hundreds of people filled the outdoor amphitheater in Uvalde's Memorial Park. And among the crowd, the families of the victims were easy to spot by the t-shirts they wore bearing the faces of the children they lost. Xavier Lopez's family wore sky blue sports jerseys. The family of Amory Jogarza wore black. 
Kesmata's family, turquoise. When it was time to light the candles, the children who were in the two massacred classrooms but survived went first. They offered their flames to the people around them until the entire amphitheater was bathed in golden candlelight as the names of the victims were read aloud. Miranda, Alipia, Maite, Annabelle, Lexi, Layla, Jayla. The shooting at Robb Elementary was the worst school shooting in Texas history. The year since has been excruciating for the families who've struggled to grieve as they've demanded accountability for the failed police response that day, but also excruciating for the community, which is fissured and fractured over the shooting's fallout. Last night's vigil was meant to be a brief, very brief respite from that sadness. Throughout the year, there's been times where that sadness just uh, is triggered by, you know, uh, a memory of a child. Hector Gonzalez was among the hundreds who lit a candle. It was nice today to have uh, a ceremony that honored and, and paid tribute to, to those children that were so tragically taken away from us that, a year ago today. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Uvalde, Texas. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, coming up at 7.45 on Morning Edition. If you can pick it, you can eat it. That's the message at a new forest of food in Mattapan. It's 7.29. Coming to City Space on Monday, June 5th, New York Times cooking writer Hetty McKinnon discusses her new cookbook, Tender Heart. It's an ode to vegetables and family. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.N. says donor countries are pledging $800 million to help people living in the Horn of Africa. As Linda Fasulo reports, more than half the money will come from the U.S. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said America's new contribution of $524 million will bring its total aid for the Horn of Africa this year to more than $1.4 billion through September. The region is facing a protracted drought, food insecurity, floods, and the dire impact of conflict. Thomas Greenfield also chided the world community for not being generous enough in contributing aid. The countries include Sudan, where recent fighting has prompted hundreds of thousands of people to flee to neighboring countries. The White House and Congress are a week away from a possible default, warns Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Negotiations to raise the debt ceiling are ongoing. NPR's Arazu Resvani says economists are painting a bleak picture if a default occurs. A default could really tip the U.S. into a recession. If the U.S. defaults, it would set off a domino effect. Millions of Americans would suddenly lose their benefits. Interest rates would shoot up. These are all circumstances that make people way more cautious. They pull back on spending, so do businesses, people are laid off. These are all typically hallmarks of a recession. 
This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's fewer than 10 months to go before New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation Republican primary. The field of presidential hopefuls is getting crowded with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis jumping in yesterday. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, all the Republicans are trying to catch the front-runner, former President Donald Trump. Lots of Republicans see DeSantis as a viable candidate who embraces many of Trump's hard-right positions, but is seen as more disciplined. But the former president has a big lead in New Hampshire so far, even though he's been indicted, faces multiple investigations, and was found liable for sexual assault. Here's Neil Levesque of the Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College. As soon as Trump got indicted, DeSantis started to sink, despite the fact they were spending large amounts of money in mail and on television here in New Hampshire. Other Republican hopefuls already campaigning in New Hampshire include former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who also joined the race this week, and former Vice President Mike Pence, who's expected to jump in soon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Some workers at Logan Airport claim their employer is ignoring safety concerns. They've filed complaints with the Occupational Health and Safety Administration. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports the complaints involve an international company called Swissport. Swissport provides cleaning services for several airlines at Logan. The company's workers say they wipe down airplane bathrooms. The job involves handling human waste and even blood. Worker Rosa Sanchez-Ortiz says she and her colleagues are not given the supplies they need for the job. Sanchez-Ortiz says some cleaning crew members don't get gloves because there aren't enough to go around. She says supervisors have done nothing about the concerns for months. A spokesperson for Swissport says employee safety is the company's highest priority and it complies with labor regulations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Massachusetts lawmakers want the Pentagon to help fund the replacement of the Cape Cod bridges. They say the bridges are the only way to get to Joint Base Cape Cod by land. The Secretary of Defense can give money to infrastructure projects if it's necessary to keep a military facility up and running. Nearly $4 billion is needed to replace the bridges, and so far the federal government has not approved funding. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. It's do or die once again for the Celtics tonight. They'll host the Miami Heat for Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Finals. Boston trails three games to one. The Red Sox were swept out of Anaheim last night. They lost to the Angels 7-3. to The Sox are off today. They'll visit the Arizona Diamondbacks tomorrow. Mostly clear skies today and a high near 66. Tonight it grows a bit cloudy. We'll have highs in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, skies clear for a sunny day with a high near 68. It's 52 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. 
And I'm Steve Inskeep. An American is about to take charge of the International Organization for Migration. The many nations that are part of it voted for President Biden's choice, Amy Pope. When we spoke, Pope began listing events that prompt people to move from African drought to South Asian floods to the war in Ukraine. We're seeing the drivers of migration grow around the world and become increasingly complex. And so that's what I'll be taking on. That's what the organization is facing. The IOM counts about 105 million people displaced on this planet, pushed aside by wars or disasters. Hundreds of millions more migrate for work, arriving anywhere from California to Dubai. The IOM aims to help people move safely and smoothly. It may provide supplies or help with paperwork. It may work with governments to refine their policies or give them research. It takes the view that migration is often good in a world where many people presume it is not. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. Donald Trump won the presidency on a pledge to stop illegal immigration. And it's not only a right-wing concern. This month, the Biden administration lifted pandemic-era immigration rules, and some Democrats warned about possible chaos, among them Representative Henry Cuellar of Texas, who spoke on this program. Looking for a better life, trying to get away from crime, are not reasons to stay, and I'm sorry, but that's what the law says. As Amy Pope knows, democratically elected governments around the world have had to reckon with the anxieties that migration brings. It's a huge challenge. And I think one of the things that IOM needs to do as we move forward is to help frame the conversation differently. I mean, we know as Americans that migration has actually led to tremendous benefits in our own country. We know even recent evidence shows that migration has revitalized communities that have been dying, in fact. When you talk about revitalizing communities, we did some reporting last year in Akron, Ohio, which had lost a lot of population and has encouraged migration from a number of countries in Asia. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm thinking of. I was born in Cleveland, grew up part of my life in Akron, then in Pittsburgh. All of those cities have benefited from migration. When you have conversations with officials in Europe, or for that matter, from the United States, do you run into people who say, I agree with your concerns, I want to be helpful, but there are political limits to what I can do? Yes and no. I mean, I think everybody recognizes the political constraints. And so people are looking for where we can demonstrate success that doesn't raise the same issues. How do you assess the situation at the U.S. border right now? Well, the United States has been struggling for the last several years with the situation across Latin America, where people have found it more difficult to make a life for themselves, to live safely. For me, that's a reason why we need to be looking at migration much more comprehensively. My view is that if you wait until people have already left home, crossed many different countries, spent their life savings to get there, and then try to deal with the migration issues at the border, we've missed a lot of opportunities to engage and come up with better policies. When you say comprehensive, do you mean reaching out to the countries from which people are coming to try to figure out ways to stabilize the situation? Yes. I mean, most people we know don't choose to leave under such circumstances, right? And our goal at IOM is to enable the choice to migrate as opposed to people who are migrating out of desperation or lack of other choice. And so it's engaging the countries where people 
live. It's building policies and programs there to provide more stability, to provide opportunities. We have to approach it from all angles. Amy Pope, thanks very much for the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. She's the newly elected Director General of the International Organization for Migration. Defunding the police. It's become one of those phrases that politicians and activists throw around at each other. But in Kansas City, Missouri, they're debating something else, whether the city or the state gets to manage the law enforcement budget. So Lisa Kalakal from KCUR has this report. In recent years, the battle over police control often centers around a controversial shooting. That was the case in April, when the Kansas City police did not immediately arrest a white homeowner who shot and wounded a black teenager who was at the wrong house when he rang the homeowner's doorbell. Kansas City Councilwoman Melissa Robinson was one of many protesting the police's inaction during a rally. We need to activate local control and we need to activate it now. Unlike any other major city in the country, Policing in Kansas City falls under the authority of the state. It's a system that dates back to the Civil War. Although Kansas City did have local control of the police department for a brief period in the 1930s. Ken Novak, a professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, says ever since the police shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, there's been a more urgent push for local control. The events in Ferguson and I think the events surrounding George Floyd has changed uh, that narrative and changed the conversation and more people who were frankly ambivalent to how police are governed locally suddenly began to look and care a little bit more than we had seen in previous decades. Missouri's Board of Police Commissioners can set department policy, hire a new police chief, and control the budget. The governor appoints four members. The fifth is the Kansas City mayor. And the city's current mayor, Quentin Lucas, is an outspoken critic of state control. It is putting us in a plantation mentality, fundamentally, where we're saying someone else somewhere can run all the decisions for us, and we're just here to work and fund them. And funding is a key issue. Last year, Missouri lawmakers passed a bill forcing Kansas City to increase minimum funding of its police department from 20 to 25 percent of its general revenue. Republican state lawmaker Tony Lutkemeyer was the bill's sponsor. So this is merely giving the predictability and stability to the police department so they can continue doing their jobs to keep Kansas City in safe. A majority of Missouri voters, except those in Kansas City, approved legislation which paved the way for the largest budget allocation for the Kansas City Police Department in five years. Mayor Lucas called that wrong and subsequently filed a lawsuit challenging state control. Why is it that 508,000 Kansas Cityans should have fewer rights than the other 6 million people in Missouri? Gwen Grant, CEO of the Kansas City Urban League, also filed a lawsuit challenging state control. This form of governing is archaic. We should be in control of our police department, especially considering the fact that we fund it. The battle over who should control the Kansas City police, the state of Missouri, or the city itself could take years. If lawsuits don't work, Kansas City leaders say they could pursue the same steps as St. Louis. The state's other big city used a ballot initiative to win back control of its police department in 2012. For NPR News, I'm Salisa Kalakal in Kansas City. This is NPR News. 
Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, there's speculation that a long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive may finally be getting underway. In your forecast, mid-60s today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight it grows overcast and falls to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, clear skies and upper 60s. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The delivery company GoPuff is suing the Massachusetts Alcoholic Beverage Commission. That follows the commission's decision to revoke GoPuff's license after it claimed the company sold alcohol to minors. The Philadelphia-based company says the decision could force it to suspend all its Massachusetts retail locations. Bustino reports GoPuff's lawsuit claims the punishment did not fit its violations. Shares in Wilmington-based analog devices fell 8 percent in trading yesterday. That follows an announcement from the chipmaker's CEO that he expects economic uncertainty to impact sales in the second half of 2023. If you're looking to spend a weekend away, you can't do much better than the Candleberry Inn in Brewster. That's according to Needham-based TripAdvisor's Best of the Best Hotels list for 2023. The Candleberry earned the top spot for best bed and breakfasts or inns in the U.S. It also ranked number five in the world. Another spot on the Cape came in number two on the U.S. list, the Captain David Kelly House in Centerville. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA. From BritBox with season two of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's a new park in Mattapan, and it's edible. It's a quarter-acre food forest with fruit trees, berry bushes, and soon mushrooms. Anyone in the community can harvest food for free. It's a collaborative effort between neighborhood groups, the city, and the nonprofit Boston Food Forest Coalition. They've helped build 10 of these sites so far. WBUR's Barbara Moran brings us this audio postcard from the opening celebration of the Edgewater Food Forest. These actually are old-growth black walnut trees, and you actually can eat the walnuts, and we do. You have fig trees, apricots, plums, uh, we have straw- all types of berries, strawberries, blackberries, golden berries. If you can pick it, you can eat it. Everything you can think of. My name is Fatima Lusalam. I'm a resident and a steward for the Edgewater Food Forest. We have game tables over there we had made, play checkers, chess, whatever. This right here is actually a yoga platform, which we're going to have classes on. And today, our Branches Steel Band is playing. My name is Jesse Damberville. I'm the lead steward for the food forest here. And I'm a director butter. I live right next to it. 
So you're already talking about mushrooms? Are you like a mushroom person? Oh yeah, I love mushrooms. I lived in Northern California. I love I love mushrooms. There gotta be a mushroom patch. Yes, there is. So I'm really, I saw them bringing the logs in from my bedroom like last week. And I'm like, yes, logs, mushrooms are coming. <laughs> and not everybody actually in the neighborhood likes mushrooms, but I am determined I'm going to make everybody in the area love mushrooms. <laughs> the sub theme of today is sound challenges. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's a lovely, lively event, right? <laughs> My name's Orion Kriegman. I'm the executive director of Boston Food Forest Coalition, which is a nonprofit community land trust. You have people of all ages. This is multi-generational and it's glorious, like the young kids playing chess on the chess tables and the steel band that's playing. So, and then of course you have the mayor coming through. So it's a, just like a great mix of folks. And without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to our mayor, who is no stranger uh, to being an advocate for green spaces, equity, and access, and she'll say a few words. Can I just shout? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so um, we know that many of these trees and plants will take a little bit of time, and some of them maybe even some decades to reach their full productivity and all the, the actual fruit bearing, but we're doing this so all the kindergartners and, and their kids one day uh, will have a beautiful space in our city. So I'm so thankful, I'm so moved to be here and um, just so grateful for all that you're doing. She's gonna cut this giant green ribbon with these like garden shears, the big crowd. All right, come on in everyone. We have shears. Let's count down from five. Five, four, three, two, one. You can see before and after photos of the Edgewater Food Forest at WBUR.org. Coming up at 810 on Morning Edition, Susan Rice is stepping down from her post as President Biden's chief domestic policy advisor. In an NPR exit interview, she reflects on what's possible to achieve in a divided nation. It's 749. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. Kids in the U.S. are now getting two-thirds of their calories from ultra-processed foods. And based on research with adults, that's probably not a good thing. Data showed increased risk of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and obesity among adults. I'm Ari Shapiro. More on ultra-processed foods and how to avoid them on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Florida Governor, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis officially launched his presidential bid last night. The U.S. Navy is sending crews to Guam to help with the recovery from a devastating typhoon. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will soon review a new redistricting map the city council approved yesterday. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com.
Mostly sunny in mid-60s today, upper 40s tonight, and it grows mostly cloudy. Then a sunny Friday in the upper 60s. It's 53 degrees in Boston at 751. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. A Los Angeles museum is exhibiting the work of Keith Haring. He's an artist whose work many people have seen, even if they only vaguely know the name. The exhibition serves as a reminder of Haring's pop culture talents, and NPR's Mendeley Del Barco had a look around. The show Keith Haring, Artist for Everybody, immediately transports you to New York City in the 1980s with music from his old mixtapes on speakers above. It opens with photos and a CBS News clip from 1982 of the then 24-year-old artist working furtively underground. He stalks the New York City subways waiting for his chance to strike. Inspired by hip-hop graffiti artists who spray-painted subway cars, Herring used chalk on empty black advertising panels on the subway platforms. He drew simple outline figures, most often a crawling, radiant baby and a barking dog. You don't have to know anything about art to appreciate it. There aren't any um, hidden secrets or things that you're supposed to understand. But he's got to be careful, because technically what he's doing is illegal graffiti. Sometimes he is arrested. Herring doesn't think he is defacing anything. He believes it is art, and many subway riders seem to agree. Herring's art was popular above ground, too, on street murals, on T-shirts, buttons, and other merch sold at his famous pop shop in Soho, and on big plastic tarps sold for millions. The Broad Museum has recreated his first major gallery show, says curator Sarah Lawyer. You can see in this painting, for example, breakdancing figures. We have one spinning on his head with these lines showing motion. So they're really joyous imagery. Herring's work fills nine gallery rooms at the Broad and includes a mini Statue of Liberty he decorated with graffiti artist Angel Ortiz and pottery embellished with his own hieroglyphics. He created his own language with his own symbols which is genius. Kenny Sharp was another iconic artist of the 1980s. He became close friends with Herring when they studied at the School of Visual Arts. It was amazing to witness because I was his roommate at that time and when he started doing those drawings it was like he was everywhere. Herring was also a huge fixture in downtown New York nightlife. He partied with people like Madonna, Andy Warhol, and Fab Five Freddy at places like Club 57, which was run by performer Anne Magnuson. Scharf and Magnuson remembered downtown New York in those days as a rundown dystopia and a creative playhouse for cutting-edge art, music, and performance. Daytime, nighttime, we were dancing, and Keith was very silly and fun, like a lot of laughing. We were in the technicolor munchkinland world of our own making, and then the Black Death swept in. AIDS began to take the lives of so many friends, and Herring made it one focus of his work. He created posters and art for the activist group ACT UP, which demanded government help for people with HIV and AIDS. Scharf says Herring wasn't afraid to speak openly. He came right out in the Rolling Stone and said, yeah, I have AIDS, and like, that was incredibly brave. Can you imagine opening about yourself as a gay person with AIDS back then? People were afraid even to be near someone with AIDS. Literally, he was shunned. 
except by his closest friends. Herring died of complications from AIDS in 1990 when he was just 31 years old. His activist art, which went beyond AIDS, is a major focus of the new exhibition. Some of his work skewered President Ronald Reagan and capitalism. He warned about nuclear weapons, and he protested apartheid in South Africa. His work remains relevant, says Gil Vasquez, who heads the Keith Herring Foundation. A lot of the things that Keith spoke up for LGBT issues or spoke up against racial disparities, police brutality. These are things that persist. You know, his art still really resonates. The new Keith Haring show is just across the street from another exhibition of the late artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. Two groundbreaking pop culture New York artists from the 80s, they both died young but are still creating a sensation. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles. The HBO series Succession ends this weekend, and just as with every other episode, the finale begins with the theme music. Nicholas Bertel composed this music, and he says he wanted it to sound a little off to illustrate the dynamics of a family that runs a media company. When things sound right for the Roy family, it's wrong. It doesn't work because the Roy family is so dysfunctional. The music has to have this kind of brokenness to it. The instruments playing the theme are deliberately out of tune. The music itself, the way that it's played, there's an off-kilter nature to it. Succession is Brattel's first job in television. He says it's a lot more work than the film scores he's composed in the past because he has to write for the entire arc of the series. And he approached that challenge with one question in mind. What if every season was a little bit like a movement of a classical symphony? Season one, he says, was like the Allegro movement. You're setting out a certain set of ideas at perhaps a slightly quicker tempo. Season two is written as an adagio. Which is sort of a slower, more introspective kind of a movement. A third movement of classical symphony might be a scherzo movement. Maybe there's something very light about season three. And the final season? Each season has its own emotional hue. I was approaching season four with kind of a multiplicity of approaches. Brittell was aware of some big plot points and a big spoiler for the final season involving the family patriarch. I knew that Logan was going to die in episode three. So Frank, Frank thinks you should speak to your dad, and I can hold the That whole sequence actually required music or a sound that I had never used in the show before because Logan had never died before. <laughs> okay, I'm putting you by his ear now. We had to feel like you were actually one of them feeling your father dying on the phone and you can't be there. You know, like, what does that actually feel like? It's a very raw sound, kind of almost breaking tremolo sound on strings. It's like you're almost in this painful haze that is engulfing you in that moment. For the final episode, no spoiler alert needed, Bertel told us it's very special and massive in scope. That's all I'll say. Yeah, I don't want to give anything away, but it's, uh, it's been an amazing experience to work on Succession, and I, I'm truly grateful for having been a part of it. The finale of Succession airs on Sunday night. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Spoiler alert, we'll be back tomorrow. I'm Steven And I'm Michelle Martin.
We'll be back here, too. Mid-60s today under mostly sunny skies. Clouds move in tonight as it falls to the upper 40s. Then we end the week with a sunny Friday in the upper 60s. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has launched his presidential bid in a Twitter interview marred by technical glitches. It's Thursday, May 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, how DeSantis is playing in New Hampshire and how he and the other Republican presidential hopefuls are trying to escape the shadow of Donald Trump. As soon as Trump got indicted, DeSantis started to sink in the background everything that happens, Trump is standing right there. Also, how Americans should plan for a federal default. We're advising people to prepare for a potential default as you would for an impending recession. And this hour. Remembering Tina Turner, the queen of rock and roll, who's passed away at age 83. Mostly sunny in 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Mourners in Uvalde, Texas, came together last night to mark the first anniversary of the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School. Texas Public Radio's Jia Chen has more. The night started with a prayer vigil at the Uvalde County Fairplex. The families of the victims invited the public to a candle lighting ceremony and a butterfly release to honor the victims. Uvalde resident Michael Cortez says the town has been ripped apart by the horrific shooting, the controversy over law enforcement's response and still unanswered questions. But this moment of unity was something special. I think it was needed for our town. Uh, It's been a year, but still feels like it's the day of. Survivors of previous school shootings came to town to support the families, saying for many this moment marked the first night of acceptance to live in the new reality that was thrust on them a year ago. I'm Jia Chen in Uvalde. The Treasury Department says Congress has about one more week to raise the federal debt limit. Otherwise, the federal government will run out of cash to pay all its bills. Some personal finance experts are advising people to prepare for the possibility of a debt default by essentially preparing for an economic downturn. NPR's Arizvu Rezvani has more. If the U.S. defaults on its debt, the cost of borrowing money would soar, making it harder for everyone to buy homes, cars, or pay off credit card debts, which would send a chill through the U.S. economy. 
That's why personal finance experts like Anna Hilhoski of NerdWallet are advising people to prepare for a possible worst-case scenario. We're advising people to prepare for a potential default as you would for an impending recession. Under a debt default, millions of Americans could see their benefits and payments suspended. Combined with a spike in interest rates, people could pull back on spending. So could businesses, increasing the likelihood of layoffs, all hallmarks of a recession. Arzu Rezvani, NPR News, Los Angeles. Western intelligence officials and Microsoft are warning that a state-sponsored Chinese hacking group has been spying on critical infrastructure networks in the U.S., especially Guam. The National Security Agency and its allies in the Five Eyes Intelligence Network, which includes Britain, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, say that similar activities could be happening elsewhere. Australia's Shadow Minister for Home Affairs and Cybersecurity, Senator James Patterson, says Australian lawmakers are aware of this. It is my judgment that if this is happening in the United States, then it's happening in every other Five Eyes country as well, and that our critical infrastructure is equally vulnerable. Um, Experts have testified before our intelligence committee in Australia that it's highly likely that there is a dormant presence on our critical infrastructure networks waiting to be activated as a prelude to a regional or global security crisis. He spoke to the BBC. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts needs $250 million to help renters on the verge of eviction. That's according to a report out this morning by several housing organizations and nonprofits. It finds the state's rental assistance program became a lifeline during the pandemic. And WBUR's Ninja Emomeka reports that help is still needed now. Rental assistance helped more than 100,000 households during the pandemic, but the report found the process was clunky. Jesse Partridge-Guerrero of the Metropolitan Area Planning Council says community organizations helped many residents apply. But in a lot of cases, they actually, the barriers were insurmountable and folks who really, really needed the support and the financial help uh, were not able to get it, weren't able to apply or, or were denied because of some sort of logistical or documentation barriers. Some of the report's recommendations include making applications available in more languages and giving renters direct cash assistance. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is renewing her push for the cancellation of student debt. She says she took she took out student loans and paid them off, but wants an easier road for the next generation. The cost of higher education has increased by 150 percent. So I do not call this student debt forgiveness because borrowers have done nothing wrong. They don't need to be forgiven anything, but they are deserving of and they do need relief. Presley says she supports the Biden administration's plan to forgive up to $20,000 in debt for each borrower. Yesterday, the Republican-led House voted to block that plan. Boston Public Schools plans to move ahead with merging some of its elementary schools. Dorchester's Shaw and Mattapan's Taylor schools will merge into one elementary school. The Sumner and Philbrick schools in Roslindale will also consolidate. The superintendent of BPS tells the Boston Globe the consolidations will free up more money to be spent on education. Those against the mergers say they could hurt students of color. Academy Award-winning actor Tom Hanks gives the keynote address at Harvard's commencement this morning. This will be the final commencement for school president Lawrence Bacow. He'll be replaced by Claudine Gay this summer. She's the first black person chosen to lead Harvard. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum. Presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer, closes May 29th. More at PEM.org. The playoff series between the Celtics and the Miami Heat returns to the Garden tonight. It's Game 5 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. The Celtics trail three games to one, so it's another must-win game. The Red Sox lost their fourth straight last night. They fell to the Angels 7-3 to in California. The Sox have the day off. Mostly sunny today and in the 60s. Some clouds tonight. It'll be in the 40s. Sunny again tomorrow and in the 60s. It'll be dry and warm for the holiday weekend. It's 53 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include A24 with You Hurt My Feelings from Nicole Holof Center. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Tobias Menzies star in a marriage comedy about the white lies people tell to those they love the most. Opens only in theaters, May 26th. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skew. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Russia has been experiencing a number of small-scale attacks on its own territory. Ukraine has not claimed responsibility, but some analysts believe that these attacks could be setting the stage for a Ukrainian offensive. NPR's Greg Myrie has a look at what Ukraine hopes to achieve on the battlefield. Major military operations are normally shrouded in secrecy. But Ukraine's planned offensive against Russia has been undergoing public debate for months, and this has created a wide range of expectations. Stephen Pfeiffer is a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. In the best case, what the Ukrainians do is they really liberate a lot of territory, perhaps even pushing the Russians back to the line on February 23 of last year before this massive Russian invasion began. That would be a huge blow to Moscow. This scenario would erase Russia's most important advance over the past year, the creation of a land bridge connecting Russian troops in eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region, to Russian forces in the south, in Crimea. But Pfeiffer acknowledges this is pretty optimistic. Probably a more realistic expectation is that the Ukrainians take a good chunk of territory back, something that would be seen in the West as underscoring that Ukraine has the potential to win. The U.S. and other NATO nations are sending Ukraine tanks, drones, and artillery, giving it more firepower than ever as it plans this offensive. But the lengthy buildup has given Russia time to reinforce vulnerable spots in the south and east where Ukraine is most likely to attack. Michael Kaufman is at the think tank, the Center for Naval Analyses. He believes a Ukrainian offensive can succeed, but says it will be more challenging than the one that pushed back Russian troops last fall. It may require multiple offensives on multiple fronts and it will likely be conducted over the period of several months rather than days or weeks. And Ukraine's offensive comes with big risks. Angela Stan at Georgetown University says Ukraine needs to advance on the battlefield to maintain the strong level of political and military support it's receiving from the West. If they don't show much success, it's going to be much harder to justify supplying all the weapons to them. Um, so I think you, they could then say if they take back some territory, hey, look, we're making progress. It's very tough. Um, we still need the equipment, the money, and please send us more. Michael Kaufman says Ukraine and its Western supporters could well have different definitions of success. Well, the honest answer is I think we'll know it when we see it. And it will, to some extent, be subjectively interpreted by different capitals, you know, in Europe and amongst Ukraine's other Western partners. The analysts also agree on another key point. Regardless of how this Ukrainian offensive plays out, they don't think it will end the war. 
They see Russian leader Vladimir Putin playing the long game, believing he can wear down Ukraine's military and the willingness of the West to provide sustained support. Again, Angela Stent. So the Russians still have hundreds of thousands of young men, cannon fodder, whom they can conscript. Uh, Ukraine doesn't have, you know, endless numbers of young men it can send to the front. Stephen Pfeiffer, meanwhile, was a longtime diplomat, but he doesn't think now is the right time for peace talks. I believe at some point there will be a negotiation in this war between Kiev and Moscow, but it, not now and not while the Russians have shown absolutely no indication that they're serious. Pfeiffer says Ukraine has repeatedly surprised the world in this war. Be prepared, he says, to be surprised again. Greg Myrie, NPR News. President Biden's domestic policy chief is ending her latest time in government. Susan Rice is about as prominent as a policy specialist can be. She was known as a foreign policy expert, President Obama's U.N. ambassador, national security advisor. Before that, she was a senior diplomat for President Clinton. In the Biden administration, Rice touched many issues at home. Her staff assembled a list of issues in which she played some part, from a nursing home staffing standard to postpartum Medicaid coverage. A lot of work of the kind that doesn't dominate the news. But Rice also engaged on divisive issues which we discussed when she came on the line. I was thinking of something that you wrote once about your foreign policy period in government. You wrote once about Syria. Every policy choice was terrible and you tried to find the least bad one. Now that you've done (laughs) two years of domestic policy, did that formula apply to some domestic issues that confronted you? It did on some issues indeed. For example, uh, the challenge with respect to immigration or crime and gun violence. But while there are many intractable domestic issues, I dare say there may be more internationally. Although it doesn't feel like that to Americans, if you think about something like abortion or guns, which you mentioned, during your time, President Biden was able to sign bipartisan gun legislation, but it was very, very modest. There was an executive order that took other very modest steps. I would imagine that whatever you did was only a fraction of what you would have hoped to do. Well, first of all, on the legislation that the president signed now almost a year ago, prompted by the horrific shooting in Uvalde and and 10 days before that in in Buffalo, that legislation was the most significant gun safety legislation that we've had in nearly 30 years. Now, clearly, we wanted Congress to do more. I think it's imperative that Congress pass an assault weapons ban again and ban these high-capacity magazines and ensure that background checks are universal and that the gun lobby uh, and the gun industry doesn't have this very unusual immunity from liability for what its products do. But the president has taken as much executive action as is possible, really, with the authorities that the president has. But Congress needs to do the remainder. What did you think you learned from more than two years of trying to shape a new immigration policy? I learned that this is one of the toughest and most intractable issues that our country faces. And the fundamental problem here, too, Steve, is that our immigration laws have not been updated for decades. It's a system that is not built for the world in which we're living. We no longer have a challenge of simply, you know, people immigrating from Mexico or even from South America seeking employment or or work opportunities here. 
we have people from around the world in the context of what is a global migration phenomenon moving not just to our borders, but across borders all over the world. And the composition of the people who are coming here, the purposes for which they're coming are quite different than when our immigration laws were last updated. And we need comprehensive immigration reform. Is is that um, part of the cause of the chaos of recent years at the border, that you would feel that you or any administration has a duty to enforce laws that, in your view, make no sense? Well, there, <laughs> we obviously have a duty to enforce our laws, but we also have a duty to update our laws to meet the challenges of the present. We are opening up lawful pathways for people who qualify to come to the United States through programs that Republican governors and and Republican attorney generals and those in Congress are trying to overturn. So what we have found, Steve, that works, and we've seen it demonstrated in, in just the last couple of weeks, is that when you combine consequences for crossing between ports of entry without authorization or crossing between ports illegally, with vastly expanded opportunities for people to come legally, the numbers of those who seek to cross irregularly goes way down. So, for example, just in the last couple of weeks with the end of Title 42, you put in place both consequence regime and a expanded set of legal pathways. And as a result, for the moment, the number of people who have sought to cross between our ports of entry without authorization has fallen by over 75 percent since Title 42 was lifted. You're correct that the surge of people that was widely anticipated did not happen. Let me ask about one other thing, though. President Biden, as he announced your departure, praised your work on this issue, said that you'd work to rebuild the broken system of care for unaccompanied minors. But as you probably know, the New York Times ran two long articles about unaccompanied minors who crossed the border and ended up working jobs while underage. Different government agencies seem to disagree about who was responsible for taking care of them. How hard has it been to bring together all parts of the government to address a problem like that? Well, it's been actually quite a challenge, but a collaborative effort. Let, let's remember where we started under the prior administration. If you were an unaccompanied child and came across the border, you were turned back. President Biden said, we are not going to do that. And we will reunite you or re, or unite you with a parent, a legal guardian, a relative, or another vetted sponsor, Mm -hmm. then your case can be heard for asylum. That's how what we have done. And as a result, we have been able to support and unite with families, you know, over 200,000 unaccompanied minors. Now, what happens after they have been paired with their family member or sponsor is something we do care about. And we have been very concerned by reports that some of these children and and maybe some who came the prior administration have been working in environments that that are completely inappropriate for children. And the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Labor have set up new systems to be much more effective in ensuring that we are following these children and being responsive to them long after they've left the care of the Health and Human Services Department. I would imagine you'll continue talking with the president, but what's a final piece of advice you would give him on your way out the door? <laughs> Steve, I, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't share it with you if I were my private advice to the president, but I am so grateful for the opportunity to serve uh, this administration and serve the country again. I would just tell the president to keep on keeping on and get it four more years. 
Ambassador Wright, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. This afternoon, and all things considered, Walt Disney's latest release follows one of its formulas for success, remaking an animated classic into a live-action movie. Bob Mondello reviews The Little Mermaid. Listen where you are to this live-action news network on your computer, your phone, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition. We remember the legendary Tina Turner. She's passed away at 83 years old. We'll take a look at her legacy in music, in the music world, and beyond. It's 8:19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. And Direct Tire & Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. Kids in the U.S. are now getting two-thirds of their calories from ultra-processed foods. And based on research with adults, that's probably not a good thing. Data showed increased risk of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and obesity among adults. I'm Ari Shapiro. More on ultra-processed foods and how to avoid them on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. More than 900,000 Massachusetts residents will drive out of town for the Memorial Day holiday. And the worst time to be on the road will be tomorrow afternoon. You already know that if you get our daily email newsletter, WBUR Today. This morning's issue has details on holiday travel and a preview of the upcoming Boston Calling Music Festival. Sign up to get WBUR Today at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Mostly sunny and a high near 66 today. Tonight, clouds move in and it falls to a low around 46. Tomorrow, back to sunny skies with a high near 68. It's 54 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. From Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. From Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors. At garden centers nationwide, ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We are close to a revolution in the way that human beings reproduce. Scientists are near creating human eggs and sperm in the lab with any one person's genes. What does that mean for humanity? Here's NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. 
It's a Wednesday morning at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine in downtown Washington, D.C. Welcome, everybody, to the National Academy of Medicine workshop. Dr. Elia Dashi from Brown University opens the Academy's first gathering to explore the latest scientific developments and complicated social implications of something known as in vitro gametogenesis, or IVG which involves making human eggs and sperm in the laboratory from any cell in a person's body. It is on the precipice of materialization, and IVF will probably never be the same. Japanese scientists describe how they've already done this in mice, coaxing cells from the tails of adult mice to become what's known as induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPS cells, and then coaxing those cells to become mouse sperm and eggs. They've even used those sperm and eggs to make embryos and implanted the embryos into the wombs of female mice, which gave birth to apparently healthy mouse pups. Mitnori Saitu joins the workshop via Zoom from Kyoto University. We are in the pathway of translating these technologies into the humans. In fact, Setu says he's already pretty far down that pathway. He's turned human blood cells into iPS cells and then used them to create very primitive human eggs. Others have created primitive human sperm this way. They're not developed enough to make embryos or babies, but they're working on that. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Well, good morning. Welcome to day number two. Let's get started. Dr. Hugh Taylor from Yale University summarizes what the group's learned so far. I've been really impressed with all the data that we've seen here today and just how quickly this field is evolving. And it makes me confident that it's not a matter of if this will be available for clinical practice, but just a matter of when. With that, um, Taylor opens a discussion of how IVG could help people. Uh, Andrea Braverman studies infertility at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. This obviously could be life-altering for individuals to build that family that they dream of through IVG. Because infertile women and men could have kids with their own DNA instead of someone else's sperm and eggs. Same goes for women of any age, rendering the biological clock irrelevant. But Braverman says that raises lots of questions. Yes, it's great to be able to not have to worry as a woman that 40 is the cliff we fall off of. But on the other hand, what are the implications for families, for the children that have parents that are older? I always think of freshman moving day in your 80s. IVG could also let gay and trans couples have babies that are genetically related to both partners. Catherine Crashell studies reproductive health issues at Yale. We, too, could point to our children and say, he has your eyes and my nose, in a way that is something that I think many queer people covet. But Crashell worries that could undermine acceptance of gay people parenting children who aren't genetically related to them through adoption or by using other people's sperm and eggs. To the extent IVG replaces markets in sperm and eggs, concerns about backsliding, I think, are really warranted. But that's not all. Dr. Paula Amato from the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland points out what she calls solo IVG could allow single people to have unibabies, babies with just one person's genes. In theory, you could reproduce with yourself and the you know, resulting child would be 100% related to you. You could do that if you wanted to. 
At the same time, the DNA for IVG could come from anywhere a single cell could be found. Hank Greeley, a bioethicist at Stanford, raises some of the provocative possibilities. 90-year-old genetic mothers, 9-year-old genetic mothers, 6-month-old fetuses that become genetic parents, people who've been dead for three years whose cells were saved to become parents. People could even potentially steal the DNA from celebrities from, say, a clipping of their hair to make babies. One law we definitely need is to make sure people can't become genetic parents without their knowledge or consent. Throughout the meeting, researchers and bioethicists warned that the ability to create a limitless supply of IVG embryos combined with new gene editing techniques could turbocharge the power to eradicate unwanted genes. That could eradicate genetic diseases, but also move designer babies even closer to reality. Amrita Pandey is a professor of sociology at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. The desire to genetically modify the future generation in a hunt for an assumed perfect race, perfect baby, perfect future generation is not science fiction. IVG, when used with gene editing tools like CRISPR, should make us all worried. Worried about drives to weed out unwanted traits like blindness and deafness. Now, everyone agrees that IVD is probably years away and may never happen. There are still huge technical hurdles and questions about whether this could ever be done safely. But Dr. Peter Marks, a top official at the Food and Drug Administration, tells the group the agency is already exploring the implications of IVG. It's an important technology that we are very interested in helping move it forward. But, Marks notes, Congress currently prohibits the FDA from even considering any proposals that would involve genetically manipulated human embryos. This creeps out our attorneys, okay? It makes them feel uncomfortable in this space. But if IVG remains off-limits in the U.S., Marks and others warn IVG clinics could easily spring up in other countries with looser regulations, creating a new form of medical tourism that raises even more ethical worries. Rob Stein, NPR News, Washington. Oh, wow, that's just the beginning of that topic. And Rob will bring us more on the implications of IVG in future reports. This is NPR News. You're starting your Thursday with WBUR. Today's top stories are next, coming up on Morning Edition at 845 as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis launches his presidential campaign, a look at the GOP race in New Hampshire and how Donald Trump looms over everything. It's 829. WBUR supporters include BioNova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics, BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. And Red Fire Farm, organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more. Delivery or pickup in Cambridge, Somerville, Newton, and other towns. RedFireFarm.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
No deaths are reported in Guam following Typhoon Mawa, but officials say damage is extensive. Roofs were torn off houses, vehicles were overturned, and trees and power lines were knocked down. Power is out. The governor of the U.S. Territory, Lou Leon Guerrero, is urging people to remain indoors. We are going to continue experiencing tropical storm winds up to about 40, 50 miles per hour. So I ask you again to please stay home for your protection and your safety. The typhoon dumped two feet of rain on Guam and flooded the island's international airport. The month of June is one week away. That's when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned the U.S. could default if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling before then. Negotiations between the White House and Republicans in Congress are ongoing. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he remains optimistic a deal will get done as he continues to push for spending cuts. I never give up at anything, so we will get a deal when we have one worthy of the American public. That was McCarthy yesterday on Capitol Hill. Later today, President Biden is expected to nominate U.S. Air Force Chief C.Q. Brown Jr. as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. If confirmed by the Senate, Brown would replace Army General Mark Milley, whose term ends in October. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local civil rights groups are criticizing the Boston City Council for how it handled the city's redistricting process. Those include the NAACP's Boston branch, Mass Vote, and La Collaborativa. The council approved a new map in a 10-2 vote yesterday. The groups call the process to change the map flawed and rushed. They say more collaboration and community dialogue was needed. The council was forced to draw a new map after a judge tossed out the old one. Work was done quickly to prevent delays in this fall's local elections. The Massachusetts Republican Party says it'll invite Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to visit the state. He formally began his presidential campaign yesterday. Amy Carnavali is chair of the party in Massachusetts. She says it'll be important for DeSantis to come to Massachusetts and talk with voters directly. She notes that many residents are leaving the state and moving to Florida. Some of that may be related to the weather, but, you know, some of that's also the fiscal policy, um, you know, that Governor DeSantis has put in place uh, since he was elected governor. So, So I think there's a lot of reasons to think that he could appeal to people in the Commonwealth. She adds that former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley will be in Boston today to attend a fundraiser coming up at 845 here on Morning Edition. WBUR's Anthony Brooks looks at how Republican presidential hopefuls campaigning in New Hampshire are trying to get out from under the shadow of former President Donald Trump. Massachusetts lawmakers will consider a proposal that would make tolls more expensive during rush hour. Those who support the measure say it would steer drivers away from commuting during busy times. A commission would be created to study the pros and cons of congestion pricing as part of the proposal. That commission would also look at transit fares on the T. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100, now on view, icaboston.org. Tonight at the Garden, it's Game 5 between the Celtics and the Miami Heat. Boston trails in the series three games to one. No NBA team has ever come back from a 3-0 deficit to win a playoff series. The Red Sox lost to the Angels 7-3 last night in Southern California. The Sox are off today. They'll visit Arizona tomorrow. Mostly clear skies today. 
today and a high near 66. Tonight it grows a bit cloudy. We'll have highs in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, skies clear for a sunny day with a high near 68. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. Your WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The Treasury Department says Congress has until next week to raise the federal debt limit or put the United States at risk of defaulting on its existing debts. If Congress fails, the fallout could be huge for many Americans. So what do we do? NPR's Arzu Rizvani has been looking into the preparations. Hi there. Hi, Steve. How widespread would the impact be of a default? A very broad swath of Americans would feel the effects. If you're already retired, a debt default would take a big bite out of your social security checks. Mm. Borrowing money to buy a car or a home will suddenly cost you a lot more. I was at an open house recently and real estate agents there were pretty nervous about how a debt default could send interest rates soaring at a time when the housing market is already struggling. Wait, 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 wait. I understand the social security part because the government is paying these checks and one of the first things that might happen if they run out of money is they might fail to pay the checks or delay paying the checks. But why the borrowing? If the federal government fails to pay its debts, why would that affect my home mortgage or somebody else's home mortgage? Well, I mean, everything is connected. If the government defaults, it will grow harder to borrow money. The U.S. will have to pay higher interest rates on bonds. And then that tends to push up interest rates on all other kinds of borrowing, including yours and mine, for things like home mortgages. Which would explain why experts are warning of a widespread economic disaster if this came to pass. So how should people prepare? The personal finance experts and economists I've talked to all echoed one another on this topic. Anna Hilhoski at NerdWallet sums it up best. We're advising people to prepare for a potential default as you would for an impending recession. So Halhoski says this because a default could really tip the U.S. into a recession. If the U.S. defaults, it would set off a domino effect. Millions of Americans would suddenly lose their benefits. Interest rates would shoot up. These are all circumstances that make people way more cautious. They pull back on spending. So do businesses. People are laid off. These are all typically hallmarks of a recession. So what do you do? Well, you want to return to the tried and true basics. Make sure you have at least three months worth of your living expenses saved up and easily accessible, not tied up in some investment. Mm -hmm. Then you want to take a look at your debts. With high inflation, a lot of Americans have been leaning on their credit cards lately. So prioritize paying off those with the highest interest. And generally remember that interest rates will be going up on everything. The last time the U.S. came close to a default, the stock market went all over the place and mostly down. What should people do if they have investments? So there's a great deal of consensus among financial experts and economists on this one. I put this to Teresa Gilarducci, labor economist and expert in retirement security. Here's her advice. Really fight your worst instinct to act on the news. All the academic research shows that if you buy and hold, 
you will do so much better than if you try to follow market trends, whether that be responding to an economic crisis or a recession. So the thing to remember here is that these investments, whether they're stocks or 401k accounts, they're all about the long game, even in this moment of economic uncertainty. Arzu, thanks so much. You're welcome. NPR's Arzu Rizvani. The queen of rock and roll, with a voice and stage presence all her own. Who else could we be talking about but Tina Turner? Turner won eight Grammys and was one of the very few to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, once as part of a duo with then-husband Ike Turner and again as a solo artist. Tina Turner died yesterday at her home in Switzerland at the age of 83. Maureen Mann is a professor and chair of the New York University Music Department, and she's with us now to offer some remembrances of this incredible talent. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. She was Anna Mae Bullock. She was growing up in Tennessee. She had a pretty rough childhood, moved to St. Louis when she was 16, met the band leader Ike Turner. Obviously, something about her made her stand out even as a teenager. What was it? It was the voice. She had an extraordinary voice. When I was a little girl, I had a rag doll. The only Ike Turner was famously abusive. I mean, physically, emotionally, despite that they produced these incredible hits, you know, River Deep, Mountain High. But she did leave him. And remember, this was at a time when people really didn't talk openly about things like that. How did she make her escape? She, it took her a while uh, to do it, and she started uh, singing with Ike Turner when she was still in high school. And they had hits together in the early 1960s. Uh, they had gotten married, even though they hadn't started out as romantic part, just recording and, and performing partners. But by the middle of the 1970s, she decided that she just had to leave. And so she did. And she left really everything behind from that mm -hmm. relationship with the exception of her name. Mm -hmm. So she didn't fight for alimony. She didn't fight for, you know, the rights to the, the music. She just wanted to keep her name because she knew that was the thing that people would remember and recognize and value. And then that huge comeback in 1984 with the album Private Dancer, four songs hit the top 10 in the U.S., won four Grammys. How did she, how did she do it? She was fortunate to cross paths with uh, a manager named Roger Davies. And he was someone who had grown up in Australia as a fan of Ike and Tina Turner. He knew her music and he recognized her incredible talent. And he also understood that the recording industry at that time was gonna have some challenges accepting a solo black woman artist over the age of 25 doing, uh, doing the music that she was doing. But they really just doubled down on the rock and roll image. Um, she stopped wearing the sort of uh, flashy outfits that she had been wearing as part of the Ike and Tina Turner review, and she developed this really cool, tough rock and roll look. And they yeah. shifted her sound to fit into the pop sound of the, the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she was such an extraordinary singer and performer 
allowed her to really connect with audiences. Um, she managed to get a recording contract and they put out that album. Okay, last question. She retired from touring almost 15 years ago. A whole generation hasn't gotten to see her live or really. What, what should they know? How should she be remembered as briefly as you can? I think as a, a Black woman who refused to stay in the box that people wanted to put her in, and as a phenomenal vocalist and entertainer, and of course, as the queen of rock and roll. And they can learn more about her in your book, Black Diamond Queens, African-American Women and Rock and Roll. That's Maureen Mann. Professor Mann, thanks so much for remembering her life with us. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. You're simply the This is NPR News. It's a Thursday on WBUR. You're one day away from Friday. Coming up in 10 minutes as voters in Turkey head to the polls this weekend for presidential runoff elections, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the financial implications of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan possibly losing his grip on the nation after 20 years in power. Mid-60s today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight it grows overcast and falls to the upper 40s. Tomorrow clear skies and upper 60s. It's 54 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Burlington-based Desktop Metal could soon be bought out by another 3D printing company. Sources tell the Boston Globe talks are ongoing between Desktop Metal and Minnesota-based Stratasys. The all-stock deal is worth an estimated $1.8 billion. The Massachusetts Restaurant Association says another increase to the state's minimum wage could threaten the industry. That's in response to an effort to put a question on the 2024 ballot that would raise the minimum wage beyond the $15 hourly rate. Backers of that plan still need to file a petition by August. That would be the first of many steps to get, in it, to get it on the ballot. It's 843. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Fresh Food Generation Restaurant, providing drop-off corporate and community catering of farm-to-plate Caribbean American fare, freshfoodgeneration.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The presidential political season is upon us in New England. Republican candidates are making their way to New Hampshire town halls and backyard cookouts. With the first in the nation primary less than 40 weeks away, voters there are getting in-person visits from a host of presidential hopefuls. As WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports, they're all struggling to get out from under the shadow of the GOP frontrunner, former President Donald Trump. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is the latest to launch a presidential run. He was in New Hampshire last Friday, making what's become a mandatory stop for politicians at the storied Red Arrow Diner in Manchester. People are good. How are you doing? We're doing what we got to do. and so. Uh... Then it was off to a meeting with Republican state legislators to tout his record as governor of Florida. So we just completed the boldest and most far-reaching uh, agenda that, that we've seen in the modern history of the Republican Party. DeSantis talked about cutting taxes, supporting school choice, reducing crime. He did not mention signing into law one of the strictest abortion bans in the country, which might not play as well in moderate New Hampshire. 
But DeSantis, the social warrior who likes to say Florida is where woke came to die, did talk about legislative efforts to oppose diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, also known as DEI. So our view is that DEI, really the way it's practiced, stands for discrimination, exclusion, and indoctrination. And that is no part of it. Ever since the Florida governor's big re-election victory last year, many Republicans see him as a viable challenger to Trump. In a not-so-veiled swipe at the former president, DeSantis says it's time for the GOP to end the culture of defeat. He embraces many of Trump's hard-right positions, but is seen as more disciplined. That convinced some 50 New Hampshire state legislators to endorse him earlier this month, including the House Majority Leader Jason Osborne. With that kind of winning mentality and principled leadership at the top of our ticket, I think uh, the Republican Party will be in great shape. Osborne voted for Trump twice for president, but says many in his party are ready to move on. I don't want to put my personal opinion on the matter, whether we should or should not have another Trump presidency, but I can read the room (laughs) and I know it's not going to happen. DeSantis joins a growing field of Republican hopefuls. They include former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, biotech executive Vivek Ramaswamy, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, the only black Republican in the Senate who also jumped in this week. But they all face a big challenge, how to catch Trump. Even though the twice-impeached former president faces indictment, multiple investigations, and was found liable for sexual assault by a federal jury, he remains the front-runner by far, according to recent polls. Neil Levesque runs the Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College. We've seen sort of a seesaw effect with DeSantis. As soon as Trump got indicted, DeSantis started to sink, despite the fact they were spending large amounts of money in mail and on television here in New Hampshire. So in the background, on everything that happens, Trump is standing right there. That was especially apparent during a recent visit to New Hampshire by former Vice President Mike Pence, who's moving closer to announcing a White House run. We need leadership in America today that'll stand up and lead America back to fiscal solvency and reform. His pitch to voters is essentially return to Trump policies without Trump. Pence won't explicitly criticize his former boss, though he says he's ready to debate him. I'd welcome the opportunity to bring my ideas forward if I'm a candidate. And uh, I've debated Donald Trump many times, just not with the cameras on. One more question about your former boss, if I may. Given that a federal jury found him liable for sexual assault, that he's under indictment, that he's facing multiple investigations, should he still be in this race? I think that's a decision for the American people and for him. Look, it's a free country. Pence says he doesn't want to be dismissive of charges of sexual abuse, but he stops well short of condemning Trump. It's an awkward dance that most of the GOP candidates are doing because Trump remains popular with most Republican voters. Among them, Max Ahmad, a businessman from Manchester. Well, I'm a Trump fan. Living in today's world, it's very hard. The economy, the prices are so high. Normal American people cannot afford that. I want to see America great again. (laughs) Ahmad says he appreciated hearing from Pence, but he's sticking with Trump. At this point, early in the race, so are lots of other New Hampshire Republicans. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks.
Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have an international perspective on Ron DeSantis' presidential bid, plus the latest accusations of hacking and cyber spying between China and the U.S. It's 849. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Negotiations are still underway as the U.S. nears the June 1st deadline set to raise the debt ceiling or risk a default. An Indiana board today will decide if a doctor should face disciplinary action after claiming to provide an abortion to a 10-year-old from Ohio. And Boston Mayor Michelle Wu today will review a new redistricting map approved yesterday by the city council. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Russell's Garden Center, seven acres of plant varieties, unique bird feeders and garden decor. A shopping experience for beginning and advanced gardeners. Russell's Route 20 Wayland. Mostly sunny in mid-60s today, upper 40s tonight, and it grows cloudy. Then a sunny Friday in the upper 60s. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston at 851. Hackers have been sniffing around U.S. infrastructure. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where you can find a new favorite Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore in for David Brancaccio. Microsoft and U.S. intelligence agencies are warning that a hacking group sponsored by the Chinese government has infiltrated critical infrastructure in the U.S. The group is thought to be developing capabilities to disrupt a U.S. response in the event of a crisis in Asia. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Good morning, Nova. Good morning. So what do we know so far about what these hackers are doing? Well, according to Microsoft, which released a few more details than we've gotten from the intelligence agencies, this hacking group dubbed Vault Typhoon is targeting organizations across various sectors, which could all be described as critical infrastructure. That includes communications, utilities, government, among a host of others. Microsoft says it's directly notified targeted organizations, and it thinks the hackers are trying to develop the ability to disrupt communications between the U.S. and Asia during a crisis. The unsaid word there is Taiwan and China's desire to unify with that island. This hacking effort could be connected, Sabri, to that longer term effort. Um, these hackers have apparently been at this for a couple of years. How did they uh, evade detection until now? 
Well, they've apparently done a very good job of covering their tracks. For the most part, not relying on malware. They're getting into networks digitally disguised as legitimate users. Microsoft and intelligence agencies say that kind of attack is hard to detect, but they're providing organizations with a blueprint on what to look for to try to root out the hackers and their activities. All right, Marketplace and Nova Sappho, thank you so much. You're welcome. It appears that Europe's largest economy has entered a recession. Germany's economy contracted for the second quarter in a row. Its gross domestic product shrank by three-tenths of a percent in the first three months of this year. Household spending went down. Government spending went down. It is the consequence of inflation and Russia's war on Ukraine. Klaus Vistesen is chief Eurozone economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. I think it's significant. I mean, it shows that Germany, uh, as the European economy that was probably most exposed to the energy shock uh, from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has now suffered a recession. I think it's, you know, it's probably a relatively mild one compared to expectations early on, uh, especially last year when prices of gas were very high and people were, were worried a lot about a very, very severe recession. But is a recession all the same? And we are starting to see it affect the labor market a little bit as well. So I do think it's significant. I mean, it does show that, uh, you know, the, the European economy has taken a significant knock from the energy price shock. That's Klaus Vistesen speaking with our editorial partners at the BBC. All right, let's do the numbers. S&P futures are up six-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are up more than two percent. Dow futures, though, are down three-tenths of a percent, 95 points. This is normally the point at which we would mention the yield on the 10-year Treasury. It's 3.782%. But also worth pointing out is the yield on Treasury bills that mature in early June. That is when the U.S. would no longer be able to pay its bills if the debt ceiling isn't raised. The yield for those bills is over 7%, meaning investors see them as more risky. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Grammarly. Grammarly Business empowers companies to drive faster results with secure enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence that works where teams do. It helps businesses break down information silos, collaborate efficiently, and quickly adapt to stay competitive. Grammarly.com slash business. And by Forever Ago. It's a history show for the whole family. The podcast makes learning about the past fun while teaching listeners to think critically about history. Voters in Turkey will head to the polls again on Sunday to vote in the, that country's runoff presidential election. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has had a small lead in the first round of voting and may well maintain his nearly 20-year run as the leader of Turkey. But he does not have a plan to fix the country's red-hot inflation, and that is a concern for some of Turkey's older voters who are thinking about their retirement savings. In Ankara, Turkey, Victoria Craig explains. There are some apple slices here. Konal Ergen sets up a picnic in the courtyard of her apartment building. I brought some water. She's a 72-year-old former English teacher who says retirement with her husband right now is comfortable. We don't have many difficulties in our daily life. But inflation here is at 44 percent. That's down from the official high of 85 and a half percent last fall. Ergen worries about their retirement savings long term. We are afraid of our future. So we save, try to save money. My children's family and we may live together. One out of 10 Turks is over 65, but their golden years are increasingly worrisome. They tend to focus on their daily purchases and emergency savings, but not on their long-term savings. 
That's Seda Peksevim, founder of Pension Research and Consulting based in Istanbul. People sometimes uh, consider taking a second job. She means ad hoc work, like driving a taxi or other odd jobs. Also, some people uh, tend to focus on uh, informal employment. They only want to survive in a daily form. In 2021, the Istanbul Political Research Institute found that 12 percent of Turks over 65 were still working, in part because pensions are not adequate. Still, President Erdogan changed retirement requirements that then allowed 2 million Turks to retire early. It was one of his moves to gain support ahead of the election. Now, people as young as 45 can retire, like Silami Çalışkan. He says things are a little bit expensive, but believes President Erdogan will do better. He was a metal worker before, and he may need to get another job eventually. But he says he's still optimistic about the Turkish economy. Retired schoolteacher Gonal Ergen is less hopeful. We have been living uh, with this for 22 years. We can't hope that in the future we will be much better than this. If President Erdogan wins, he says he will continue to cut interest rates. That unorthodox policy has stoked inflation and eroded many Turks' long-term savings. In Ankara, Turkey, I'm Victoria Craig for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Thanks for being with Morning Edition today on WBUR. Mid-60s today under mostly sunny skies, cloudy and upper 40s tonight. Then we end the week with a sunny Friday in the upper 60s. It's 55 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Perkins School for the Blind, global leader in education for children with disabilities. Help more of them access education at perkins.org slash changing lives. Kids in the U.S. are now getting two-thirds of their calories from ultra-processed foods. And based on research with adults, that's probably not a good thing. Data showed increased risk of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and obesity among adults. I'm Ari Shapiro. More on ultra-processed foods and how to avoid them on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.